Welcome to the 1000 Hours Outside Podcast. We have today a woman who changed my life, literally changed the lives of our children, Angela Hanscom, founder of Timbernook, author of Balance and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah, I love, I love when we've already connected because then I'm less nervous. Yeah. <laughs> we're already friends we've already done a couple things online together so yeah. um and I know in our Facebook group our 1000 hours outside Facebook group people are always thrilled that that you're in there you're like she's in here she's in the, group, the author so um this really you have changed my life with this book and I always tell people like this is the must read this is the must read for parents so I'm gonna I want to tell about my story how we ended up with your book, but let me read your bio first. Angela Hanscom is a pediatric occupational therapist and founder of Timbernook, which focuses on nature-centered developmental programming in New England. But you also have Timbernook programs I know all over. Angela holds a master's degree in occupational therapy, an undergraduate in kinesiology, the study of movement with a concentration in health fitness. She specializes in vestibular balance treatment and sensory integration. She is also the author of the book, Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children, which discusses the effects of restricted movement and lack of outdoor playtime and overall sensory development in children. Um, that's what, I love that. You just really are impacting families and impacting kids. And um, so, so tell me real quick about how many Timbernook programs there are. Okay, so we have about, I would say, 40 locations, um, and we're in four countries. So we have four or five sites in Australia, and then we have one one in London. <laughs> so we at least have one in Europe, and then we have about five or six sites in Canada, and then the rest are in America. Yeah, all over the place. I can't wait to talk more about it. My path to your book is is sort of part of their whole 1,000 hours outside. Like, where did it come from? People ask that a lot, where did it come from? And it really stemmed your your book was sort of the, the foundation for it. When my kids were little, you know, like under three, we had three of them, and I was drowning as a mom. And I know we've talked about this story uh, with your, with your Timberneck um, staff before, but I was drowning as a mom, and a friend had told me about Charlotte Mason. Mm was an educational philosopher in the 1800s and she talked about kids being outside for four to six hours a day whenever the weather was tolerable and that was a number that to me just sounded absurd and you know off the wall and who is actually doing that who has time for that but we tried it and um this is it's been a decade at this point we tried it we went to a local park for four hours from nine in the morning till one in the afternoon and we had such a good day. It was the first day I think I had hope as a mom that I was going to survive, you know, the early childhood years because they're so draining and you know, young kids have so many needs and sometimes it feels just insurmountable. And so um, we had such a good day that we continued to sort of incorporate these long days outside. And I was only doing it for myself because it's like survival mode. But I noticed real quickly, actually, that our kids were starting to thrive. They weren't getting sick and, um, you know, they were able to do these more complex things. They were happier. They were sleeping better. And I came across your book and it put all the pieces into place for me as to what was 
really happening. And um, you just go through in detail, but in an interesting way, all of these benefits that kids are getting from when they just play outside. And so it's just this win, win. Um, So you talk about that, you know, the occupational therapy clinics often have wait lists that go out for a year. Um, Tell us about your path to writing Balanced and Barefoot. Sure. So yeah, I worked in a number of different settings. So I worked with preemies when they first um, came home and I worked in hospital settings and I've worked in schools and then, but most of my experience was outpatient therapy clinics. Um, And they're often called sensory gyms. Uh, The one I worked in the most um, was very brightly colored and had a lot of primary colors. Um, They had like those, a big bulb and kind of like Chuck E. Cheese, you know, with the plastic balls and swings hanging from the ceiling. Um, And I remember bringing my daughter in one day who um, her activity level, or we call it arousal level, was pretty, because she's pretty grounded. But when she went in there, she jumped in the ball pit, she's throwing balls around and her activity level is going up higher and higher. And then um, actually two therapists came in and were like, we should put her through the squeeze machine and calm her down. And so it was really interesting because the environment alone was overwhelming to her. And I thought that was really interesting as an occupational therapist, um, we're supposed to be sensory experts. And I thought interesting that this environment is put her, putting her in an over arousal state. Um, and so just a series of events happened in my life. I just started picking up on that we had huge wait lists was one of them. So a lot of times, if you talk to an occupational therapist, they, they have huge a huge caseload right now, uh, a very big demand. And many of them can't keep up with it and they can't quite give um, children what they need. It's like, um, it's very interesting. A half an hour a week is not enough for, the, for children to, um, you know, be able to regulate themselves and be able to strengthen their muscles, all that kind of thing. So um, in one clinic I, I was working at, they kept hiring more and more occupational therapists and we were all crowded. We had to like share rooms and, um, and we would go through the book and it would take, the people were waiting about a year to get in to see us um, too. So we couldn't, again, meet the demand. Then I saw um, a child came in to see me. It was a boy. And I remember he didn't like wind in his face. And I remember thinking, how do I treat this in a, inside a clinic setting? Because often we're found indoors, occupational therapists, and we work on indoor play. You know, we have our swings are inside. We bring a little box of sand indoors. And I kept thinking how, you know, what do I do? Get a fan? Do I blow the fan on his face? You know, how do I treat this? Um, A lot of kids not wanting to get dirty um, or messy fingers, but the number one issue was that kids were starting to, um, be, be more and more clumsy. So falling out of their chairs at school is what teachers are starting to report. Um, you know, running into each other, um, running into the walls, even, um, you know, falling off playground equipment. So that was, you know, just very interesting information. And I just kept filing it away, filing it away. Finally, I decided to stay home with my children. I was all done working. I had no plans to be a manager of anything. I, if it's funny looking at colleagues I talked to, they're like, this funny that you're running an international company because you're, it's really a small business, but it's an international one because I didn't even want to be, I just wanted to be an occupational therapist 
And that was my dream and, you know, raise my children. So I had no plans to work. Um, so when I, um, took time off, I joined a mom's group because that was kind of the thing to do at the time. And I overscheduled my own daughter. We were, she was signed up for a million different things and she was getting very overwhelmed by her schedule. Um, I had nightmares of going in the woods. I was scared to go in the woods because at the time I live in New Hampshire, ticks were um, becoming a big thing. And I thought, you know, she's going to get Lyme disease. So so I had a lot of fears to overcome as well. So it was a very interesting um, process for me. Um, then a lot of um, my daughter's friends needed occupational therapy a lot. I just noticed like, again, why this rise in this need for therapy? What is going on with children? Um, at the same time, I noticed there wasn't a lot of kids playing outside. We, we take a shortcut through a neighborhood to get to our property. Uh, we live on about 12 acres of land, woodland, and then 50 acres of conservation. And just one day I was cutting through the neighborhood going, where are the kids? You know, I know they live in those houses, but they're, they're never outside. So I thought, you know, I was going to do um, something to get kids outdoors. I thought it was in the form of nature classes. <laughs> um, and so I started with that and I ran one and um, I had a parent come up to me with her son in hand and asked me, you know, why did the leaves, can you tell my son why the leaves change color? And I, I looked at her and I'm like, okay, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a naturalist or an environmentalist. And really at the time, those were um, the professions that were running nature type programming. So it really helped me to reflect on, you know, what does occupational therapy have anything to do with um, outdoor programming in general? And I've, I really have come to just realize even recently, really, it's just really become clear this past year and a half that um, my mission in life is to bring back the occupation of outdoor play um, because it's a really important occupation for children. Um, and that's what my job is. My job is to um, use the occupation of a child to enhance development. And we, a lot of us, again, we're indoors. We're not, we weren't thinking about the outdoors, but the outdoors, occupation of outdoor play is a really important occupation for children. And it's really at risk in ways I, I never even realized. Um, and so that's, that's kind of been a, a journey for me, but that's how this program started. Um, then we started doing summer camps because I had a friend in marketing say, I think you'll find parents want to drop their children off more than come with their children. So I was like, okay, I'll do one camp. And she goes, no, you have to do at least three to be marketable. And I was like, okay, I'll just, and I was just going to do it for one summer. And, um, I went to the University of New Hampshire and asked occupational therapy students if they wanted help me because I thought what a great um, opportunity for students to kind of see the outdoors for its therapeutic value. So I took four volunteers that first summer. I had no idea what I was getting into because typically we work one-on-one -on -one with the children when we treat a child or we work in a very small group of kids. We're not used to managing large groups of children. So I didn't know how much work it was. I didn't realize I was starting a business. I was going to do it one summer. Uh, so I ran it. Uh, it was successful. But after the three weeks, I, I was like, I'm all done. <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, that was, I was so tired. Um, it was like putting on a giant event for three weeks in a row. So 
what happened though was I had those students went back to the university and told other OT students. And then I had 14 people ask if they could volunteer at our program for the next year. Your program that wasn't even a program. (laughs) It wasn't a program. And then I had two teachers reach out that heard about the program. And one was um, an elementary teacher and the other one was like a middle school education teacher. He still works with us today, which is interesting. One of the teachers said, wouldn't it be fun if we did stories out in the woods, like three little pigs? And she said, we could, you know, sit at tables and build a little house out of hay, a little house out of bricks and a little house out of sticks. And then we can reenact that story. And I, as a therapist, I was thinking, wait, what if we brought real bricks into the woods and they can pick them up and engage the muscles and senses and real sticks and bales of hay. So they're, they're living and breathing the story. And she was like, yes. And so that, that shifted that first year. I was really, um, I was entertaining them. I had an adult directed activity outside for them every, like every 30, 45 minutes and it, it changed it to be more exper- experimental, uh, experiential play opportunities. So really the environment stage to inspire, inspire play, but the adults kind of fade into um, the backdrop um, and, you know, allow the kids to take the lead. Um, I don't know if you want me to keep going, but it just oh, basically. Okay. I think, it, I think just, it's good because I think actually a lot of people might relate to your story and and sort of being on the same journey. So yeah, no, keep going. Okay. So basically um, every year I said, I'd do it one more year. (laughs) I'd be all done. Um, But I basically, my life journey is learning to, I've learned to let go. Cause so I, in the past, I was always focused on what I was going to do. I'm, you know, very hyper-focused. And then I realized it wasn't about me um, and that I needed to get out of the way and just say yes to whatever um, God was leading me to do. And so that's, that's really a huge part of my journey. And so what happened next was uh, three years down the road after I said yes, three more times, um, we released our programs in February and at nine o'clock and at nine Oh two, we had wait lists for all four weeks and I had parents calling and I couldn't keep up with it. Um, the demand basically at two and tier, two parents call in tears saying, Hey, my kid got into your program last year and didn't get in this year. What are you going to do about that? And I was like, I don't know, because I was taking, I wanted my summers for my children. It wasn't something I didn't want to work. Remember it wasn't part of my plan. <laughs> so I, I also had an occupational therapist and a physical therapist reach out at that time and ask, this is really unique what you're doing for our profession. Do you mind if we replicate, you know, do you do offer some kind of training? Can we replicate your program? And that's when I realized that this was a gift that I needed to share. And so I decided to meet with business mentors because I didn't have business experience and I started getting mentoring and I um, now we license a program and we train providers from around the world to offer this philosophy in this program for children. Um, it's often in the woods, but not always it's, it ha- it's in nature. That's away from buildings and it's, it's, different outdoor play experiences that really get kids playing on a higher level. Um, It's very deep. There's a lot of layers to the benefits of this kind of programming, but I didn't really realize until I saw it in action over the years and started seeing, you know, kids change in front of our eyes. Uh, It's very interesting. 
Yeah. And change quickly. Yeah. Change quickly. It really does something for them. Yeah. I love what you said about bring back the occupation of outdoor play. It's like, it's almost like, um, you know, you were in sort of a box, right? Which is like dealing one-on-one in small groups, indoors, as an occupational therapist. And it's like, as you opened up your view of the world and your purpose, um, then your occupational therapy has, has spread across the globe. And um, that's really an inspiring story. At what point did you write the book? Okay, so that's the next part of the story. So basically around that time, I, um, you know, there were certain things that were really bothering me. So I, at the time I was still doing private treatment outdoors too. So I was running my camps, but I also saw children privately outside. So I took my swings outside, I brought everything out. And I remember working with a child and I had, I was like, I want you to stand on the swing. And she said, that's dangerous, Miss Angie. And I'm like, huh. And then I'm like, um, I want you to spin on your swing when you get to school. And she said, okay. So she came back the next week and she said, they won't let me spin on my, my swing, um, at school. They're not, they've outlawed that basically. And I'm like, huh. So I, um, asked the teacher that one of the recess monitors, I said, is it true that the kids can't spin anymore on swings? And she said, no, they're not allowed to. In fact, she goes, they can't go on their belly anymore and they have to stay in this upright position. And I was thinking, well, as a therapist, what we do is when we treat a child, we try to get them in an anti-gravity position. We want them to go on their bellies. We want them to go on their side. And we actually want to spin them in all different ways um, because there's hair cells in the inner ear and we want those to be stimulated. We want the fluid to move back and forth. And that's actually how um, to help a child know where their body is in space and become more and more safe in their environment. So I... I was really shocked because here we are therapists um, helping children to be safer by moving in all different ways. But um, in the school, they're keeping them upright and um, we're having issues because of that. And so that's that those kind of things kept coming up. There was all sorts of stuff like, you know, playgrounds were changing and all the things that we do for therapists. Um you know, or would advocate for were being taken away. Um, the other thing is my daughter turned five and she went to kindergarten and the teacher met with us ahead of time and said, this is not kindergarten. Like you remember growing up. She said, this is really like first grade. She said, we won't have time to teach your children how to cut with scissors. My husband will pre-cut everything at nighttime. So we don't have to worry about that skill. If they don't wear, um, if they can't tie their shoes, please put elastic laces on because we don't have time to teach them how to tie their shoes. Um, five minutes for snack, she said. But if that gets in the way of curriculum, it will be a working snack. And then she said 15 minutes for recess. And um, But when it snows here in New England, there's snow most of the year, school year. Um, she said it will be an indoor recess because we don't have time to get your children changed. So this whole theme of we have no time for developmental skills kept coming up. Um, And so I ended up um, homeschooling my own children for a couple of years and really being immersed in the programming. I started, I wrote an article called Why Kids Fidget and what we can do about it. Uh, It was, again, it was just bothering me and had no idea that that would go viral, um, but it did on my blog. And got over a thousand comments on the Timbernick blog. And that's how the concept of Timbernick went 
international pretty quickly. It got picked up by the Washington Post, and then that went viral. Um, and they sold world rights to um, Times of India. Jerusalem Post picked it up. And that's how I was um, did a TED Talk for Johnson & Johnson on their main stage. And that's where the book came about, was that whole message of we're overly restricting children in ways that, you know, they're not designed to do, and it's affecting development um, in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Question, what's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Read a few chapters of that book, start painting that guest bedroom, tackle that pile of laundry, play a card game with your kids. A lot of us spending our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. If you're feeling stuck, therapy is something that can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. Therapy is a wonderful thing. It can help you learn positive coping skills or show you how to navigate properly setting boundaries. With BetterHelp, it's easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try and visit BetterHelp.com slash 1000 hours to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash 1000 hours. What a story. What a story. Here you said he didn't even, you know, you're trying to stay home and all of these. I just wanted to stay home. It's incredible. And this book, I mean, it's it's so interesting and but it's also an easy read so I think that that's a hard combination to find of something that you can put through and it's light and it's encouraging but you just get so much out of it um can we talk about a couple of the things that are in the book balanced and barefoot absolutely so one of the things that you talk about and this is sort of I think a, a common theme is that um that risky play, play in general, kids getting you know out of the upright position. That this makes them safer in the long run, and so we're kind of headed the wrong direction, right? And maybe that's a little counterintuitive. Um, that risky play makes us safer in the long run, but we're sort of headed in the in the wrong direction. So you say in your book, in nature, children learn to take risks, overcome fears, make new friends, regulate emotions, and 
create imaginary worlds. And I know those are just some of the very few benefits. What are some of, would, if you were to talk to parents, yeah. you know, um, or teachers, or caregivers, what are some of the top, you know, two, three, four benefits um, that parents may not know of uh, just about going outside to play? Sure. So I think one of the big eye-opener ones was something I kind of touched on, but um, basically when we overly restrict children, um, when we keep them in an upright position for most of their day, which is what's happening, right? They're sitting, often being driven from one event to the next. They're sitting in, in chairs for a majority of the day. Um, they might have sports, but they're still kind of upright. A lot of times when you're playing soccer, you're getting some um, movement, but you're still kind of in this upright position. And really we do want kids to move in ways that make adults gasp, right? So we want them to go upside down. We want them to spin in um, vigorous ways. Um, uh, kind of like when we were growing up, right? We would spin till we got dizzy and we get up and do it again, um, roll down the hill, um, climb trees. And we want that head moving all different ways. Um, again, because we want the fluid to move back and forth to stimulate those hair cells. And what that develops is called your vestibular sense. And what a lot of people don't realize is that sense is key to all the other senses. If that is underdeveloped, so let's say kids are sitting for, uh, or only moving once a week, they're, they're just not getting enough um, vestibular stimulation. Um, so a lot of kids are walking around with underdeveloped vestibular sense, and that helps with knowing where your body is in space, as we talked about before, um, to walk from point A to point B safely, get on and off playground equipment efficiently, um, stay in your chair without falling to the ground. The, but the other thing it does is it helps support all six eye muscles to be able to work as a team. So you might go to the nurse's office and read a visual um, Snell and eye chart just fine. And so you might have a good visual acuity, but it doesn't mean that you have good visual school skills. It doesn't mean that your muscles can work as a team. And that's really important for um, scanning, for reading, and for writing. So, so think of the vestibular system also supports um, the eyes. It's like a tripod to control the eye muscles. Um, another thing it does is it helps with um, being able to pay attention. So what it does is it turns wow. a reticular activating system on in the brain. So um, that's why sometimes you'll see kids fidgeting is they're trying to ignite that vestibular sense um, so they can pay attention and tune into the, the teacher. Um, and they just need plenty of movement so that they can be able to um, pay attention for long periods of time. So you've got kids. I mean, I remember this. I, I remember tipping back on my chair. Yeah. I loved yeah. that. Right. And so actually kids are doing these things. Mm-hmm. really smart their bodies are their bodies are driving them you know to do a certain thing to help wake up their brain you know yeah. to help them to pay better attention um and then like you said we're just constantly like sit still uh I remember at school I mean we love those parallel bars and and we'd hang upside down and swing upside down you know back and then flip over you know it's all these things and I didn't do gymnastics but my friends did gymnastics but I found that you know most of most of the kids could still do that movement, you know, they hook your hook your little feet over and you just hang and yes. Um, you know, so I think as a parent, to know that these things that kids are naturally drawn to, no one tells you to do those things, right? right. No one tells you to swing on a tire swing and no one tells you to hang upside down or to cartwheel. Um, but that kids are instinctively drawn to these movements that are helping them pay attention. 
you know, that are helping them develop their vestibular sense. And then also, like you said, their other senses that are helping their eyesight. Yeah. It's miraculous. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. The body is amazing. Um, and if you think about, so you're right, the neurological system is designed to seek out what kind of sensory in, input they need at any given time. So if a child's spinning in circles, it's because they're trying to organize their brain. So it's only when we keep keep them from always doing that, right? If we're like, stop spinning, you're going to get dizzy. Because I that's those are things I hear all the time. Or, you know, get, get down from that rock, you're going to get hurt. Um, it's when we keep doing that, that we're not allowing that neurological system to do its work. Yeah. And this is just one piece of the puzzle. I mean, when I read through your oh, book, yeah. you know, I'm learning about the rods and cones of the eyes. I'm learning about ligaments and how when the terrain is varied, you know, the kids are stretching their ligaments in different ways than if they're just walking across carpet. And so they're, you know, they're less prone to injuries in the long term. And, um, yeah. you know, so just so many amazing benefits to read about in your book. and. Um, I think that parents and caregivers should know them, you know, to know that uh, we can, I always say we can, we can gain more and do less <laughs> just by going outside, which is, yeah, the, which is a good, uh, good thing to know. So, okay. So let's flip it then because yep. you actually start with risks. Yeah. Your book starts with the risks. Um, you say compromise sensory and motor development can lead to a slew of problems and are quickly becoming an epidemic of grave concern. So it would seem that staying inside would be the safer route, but tell us why it's actually riskier to stay inside. Yeah, it goes back to, um, you know, if we constantly keep kids from taking those um, challenges, then they are not, we got, we call it the just right challenge. For, so we don't talk much about risky play um, in the world of occupational therapy as much as um some, some of the, I guess we're not up on the lingo, but we just have a different term for it. Yeah. So we call it the just right challenge. So we want them to, let's say their baseline is here. Their balance is, you know, they're at this level. We want them to reach the next level. So we're constantly, we want them to um, constantly challenge that to get to the next developmental level. So if you think of walking indoors, everything's flat, it's really not challenging. Um, after a while, you kind of adapt to that and you don't think about it. But when you're walking outdoors, it's constantly uneven. You're constantly adjusting your muscles and your balance, your vestibular sense to and everything. So we, we want that kind of environment. We want novel stimuli constantly, um, you know, gently coming at the child so that they can organize that and make new connections in the brain. Um, I like that terminology. I think yeah. risky play actually is a turnoff. Um, yeah. because there are things that are risky and, and have it, dire risk, everything's right? a risk, right? But, but I did, I read about, or maybe I listened to someone that talked about risk assessment is mm -hmm. like this, um, you know, this instantaneous assessment of how dangerous is it yep. in combination with how likely is it to happen? Right. And so, you know, like for young children, you're not going to let them play near water unsupervised because Absolutely. very dangerous and right. also very likely for something to happen. And so, but when we're talking about risky play for children, we're talking about, um, you know, if they jump off the, the log that's fallen over and they slip, well, how likely is it to happen? Maybe, you know, and, and how, but how risky is it? Well, they're going to, maybe they're going to need a bandaid. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, that dire. And so I like this just right challenge. I think that's, um, really good terminology. You talk about uh, when children don't experience enough movement opportunities to ch 
challenge and strengthen their bones, the load-bearing capacity of bones decreased significantly. So that's another risk. I had, um, I don't know if you know Katie Bowman. She's got a nutritious movement, and she just said recently that osteoporosis is a pediatric disease. Oh, wasn't that interesting? That is interesting. So that's one of the risks. So talk about, let's talk about load bearing activities. My midwife used to talk about this and I thought about it when you talked about bringing in the bricks for the little pig's house. Yeah. So, well, I, I think that Katie Bowman's like in my book, I definitely reference her for that type of work, but um, the way I look at it as a, a sensory, um, you know, expert, I would look at the proprioceptive input that is giving to the child. So when um, they're picking up heavy bricks or big logs, um, they're getting nice senses to the joints and the muscles, um, which is something that they need to be able to know where their limbs are in relation to each other, but also to be able to use how much force to use when playing games with other children. For instance, like when um, playing games like tag, what's happening is a lot of kids are now hitting with too much force. Um, and some schools are actually banning tags saying, fine, you know, they're getting too aggressive. Let's take away tag, um, without really understanding what's, why that is happening in the first place. And, um, the way we treat that for children is a lot of, and we call it heavy work. And so we will, um, recommend a lot of push pull activities or, you know, like farm chores, you know, picking up bales of hay, all of um, digging in the dirt for hours. All of that, again, um, helps stimulate the joints and the muscles. Um, and it, it also helps with stuff like being able to pick up a baby chick and not squeeze it to death. <laughs> or, you know, like being able to write with a pencil without breaking the lead over and over. But that's um, a sense that, again, and a lot of people aren't necessarily thinking of. Um, it's called, again, the proprioceptive sense. So we do want to provide plenty of outdoor play. So they're getting enough proprioceptive input to develop those senses properly. Um, there, I'm very concerned actually with the state of childhood in general right now. And I guess I didn't really understand how bad it was till I started um, uh, observing, like I'm, I'm actually volunteering um, for doing a health class right now at a school. And it's just like during the pan, I think the pandemic in some ways made things even worse because a lot of these kids are on screens and um, for the majority of the day. And I remember asking them to do one screen free day. And you thought like I would have taken away <laughs> their life. They're like, what? I can't, I can't do that. But um, if you think about it, they're on electronics most of the time. They're, they're just pushing buttons with their thumbs or texting, you know, um, they're not getting that heavy work that they need. And so that sense is bound to be affected. And we're bound to see kids go up and be more aggressive when they play with other children and tackle them and not, not know their own strength, um, not be able to regulate that force as well. And it's something I, you know, I actually had never heard these other senses before. Uh, I learned them from your book. Okay, good. So, um, you know, I only knew of the five that I learned in school right. um, and I didn't know that there were these other ones. And so it's something that I thought of over the years since we've been outside is that nature uh, through the seasons provides these different opportunities for heavy work. So, you know, for example, in the winter and we're in Michigan, so we got snow like you do. I mean, these kids are pushing these, making the snowmen, right? And they're pushing these huge um, things of snow, and then they're lifting it up onto the next one, and then they lift one up there. Um, and you know, this is something that young children love to do. Um, 
And, you know, it's, and then here it's fall, right, as we're recording this. And so I've got kids, you know, we go to the pumpkin patch and they they want to try and lift up the heaviest pumpkin. So once again, it's this theme that we don't even have to instruct them to do these things. Um, by the opportunity. Provides. Yeah. Yeah. You know, year, year round for these different things. One of the things you wrote in your book was, um, as and you talked about this with your daughter, as academic demands on children increase, many children are asked take a seat. They aren't sitting for just a brief period, followed by lots of rich opportunities to learn through hands-on experiences. On the contrary, the majority of children are expected to sit for hours every day. This lack of movement combined with an unrelenting relenting sitting routine is wreaking havoc on children's minds and bodies. I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge statement. I mean, I think you talk about stamina, you talk about immune system, you talk about posture, you talk about the eyesight. Um, And even like another thing that we see is a really big issue um, that has that's related to that is that um, children aren't they're so used to right being restricted body wise, but they're also restricted in being with ideas because they're used to adult directed activities. Everything's always done for them. Everything's like almost already cut. It's too, like you said, it's too right? Easy, right? Pre-cut. Everything is too easy for them. And so it takes away that challenge that we were talking about, even for the mind. So um, a lot of kids are having trouble initiating a play idea and executing that play. And so one thing at Timbernook that we like we think about all the time is like our job is not to give them ideas, it's to inspire. Like there's it's everything's staged, but it's they have to come up with a play idea. So, and that, that's a really, that's called an executive functioning skill. So a higher level thinking skill. And, um, but if you think about, they don't have a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, besides recess, which is really short, uh, often, um, they don't have an ideal environment to practice different play schemes and dive deep into the play. And, and also have to be mentally flexible with other people's ideas. Um, and, you know, regulate emotions when they deal with conflict and, you know, all sorts of stuff that they're getting that all the things that you could, they would translate to the boardroom and you be assertive, but not too assertive. You know, can you make sure that you own your voice, you have a voice, but, but also that you can um, be flexible with others ideas. And I mean, this has challenged me to take a step back and see what's really going on and then really just being in awe. Of, of how children can enter into these play experiences and, and come up with something out of nothing. I mean, how many of us can do that, right? I mean, this is really, truly yeah. miraculous what the kids can do. I know you say at Timbernook, we are not in the business of entertaining children. Yeah. Boredom is beneficial, right? Yep. yep. So we that's that part of, yeah. Well, one of the things you say um, that I've actually talked to a lot of people about is you say it takes an average of 45 minutes for children to find out who they're going to play with, decide what they're going to play, and finally come up with a play scheme. Yeah. But I think that 45 minutes is something that's really important to talk about, yeah. especially if recess is 15 minutes, right? Yeah, so it does. It just takes time to figure out, yeah, what am I going to play? Who am I going to play with? And then actually dive into that play scheme. Um, in the beginning, when we first started doing Timbernook, it was almost clockwork. I remember going like, oh, there's a 45 minute mark. And when we start a new Timbernook program, it's very similar. It takes, it just takes time because they're very novel at playing like that. 
However, after doing Tim Burton many years, a lot of these kids come back and they already are very creative. They've had much experience. And so they are part of the environment for other kids and they inspire those new children to play at a quicker level. So it's very interesting. Um, our Friday group the, this year is very new at playing. I, I don't know if we have... They're just very new. And so it took an hour and a half, this, like the first two weeks. And I was like, whoa, this is a really long, which is fine. But it took an hour and a half. It was a lot of exploratory type play. Um, and they would kept checking in with the adults, which is very interesting. Like, what do we do now? One little boy had a watch and he was um, going, um, what, you know, what time is it? My lunchtime is at 12 o'clock. So he couldn't be flexible with the idea of time, which was really interesting. Yeah. So we recommended he don't bring a watch to Timbernook. Yeah. Um, they have no sense of time because we want them to be away from what's happening in the world. We want them to just dive into their play world and not worry about time. Um, so that was really interesting. But yeah, um, it, recess is, um, it's just not enough time. If it's 15, 20 minutes, you know, you're just figuring out who am I going to play with? And then, you know, the bell rings. <laughs> so yeah, they get very frustrated. And and I think that 45 minutes is important to know because a lot of people, they message me and they say, my kid's not playing or right. you know, what do I do? And like sometimes it's, you just have to wait, wait it yeah. out, you know, and just have little things that you say. Like I say to our kids, uh, you know, I trust you'll find something to do. Yeah. You know, just okay. little things, you know, you'll figure it out. It's okay yeah. to be bored. I mean, all these types of little things that, um, that you are diffusing, you know, and, and it doesn't make it into a big deal but to, to have in our mind that it might take a little while for them to figure it out and that's okay and that's normal um i have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported and that's why i decided to give ag1 a try not only does ag1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins minerals pre and probiotics and more but it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple it's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drink ag1.com slash one zero zero zero. Check it out. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. 
We had a somewhat last minute get together recently and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chops hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chops price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside120. I've got a, I've got a little... I've got a couple sentences here. You say, this has been part of my journey. As adults, we may feel that we always know what is best for our children. A child's neurological system begs to differ. Children with healthy neurological systems naturally seek out the sensory input they need on their own. They determine how much, how fast, and how high works for them at any given time. They do this without even thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. That can give parents just a lot of confidence. I like that you said executive functioning. That's like a buzzword. You know, that makes me feel like, okay, I should let my kids do imaginative play, right? Because we want their executive function yeah. <laughs> to be high, to, to be top notch. Um, you talk about gifts for our children. So you say, I discovered that movement through active free play, particularly in the outdoors, is absolutely the most beneficial gift we as parents, teachers, and caregivers can bestow on our children to ensure healthy bodies, creative minds, academic success, emotional stability, and strong social skills. So we're coming into the holiday season. We're coming into the season of gifts. You know, I don't know if we really view time as a gift, time and space, um, but let's talk about this. I mean, how long do these benefits of unsupervised, unrestricted um, play last? Oh, oh my gosh. That's, yeah, it's such a loaded question, but it's, I think that even just one experience, each experience adds on to, um, the child's memories, their, you know, their confidence with their bodies and playing with other children. Um, I think it's invaluable. Again, I, I know I keep saying this, but it's, it's more important than ever that children do this. Um, I have a quick story to tell you just a recent yeah. one. We had a, I actually brought my 16 year old daughter to the doctors for her normal physical. And the doctors had two questions for her about joy. And she's like, do you find joy every day? Yes. And it was another question about joy. And I wish I remembered, but she looked at her and she said, you're one of the only children that have answered yes to both those questions because children are struggling with joy right now. And so for me, this is more, this has become more than just a physical piece, but that children just need space away from what's happening in the world. Um, and they need to be children. They need to play. Um, it's a layer of protection around them, um, almost like a refuge, but, and it's, it, it will bring them, you know, we need to allow them to be joyful and to just, 
you know, have fun and to laugh um, and to not worry about anything. So I think it's a huge gift right now to make sure that your children have some time to play every day. Um, it's really important for mental health right now. Um, so like, I feel like we're looking at the um, hierarchy of needs and like, we're kind of here, like this is a lifeline for kids, but then you're getting all the other benefits we talked about too, like on top of that. Right. I mean, that's, I, that is sort of the thing. I mean, my journey was that, you know, our time outside started out because I was drowning. Yeah. I needed help and right. it helped me, it helped yeah. me be present and it helped me be hopeful and it helped me um, right. build with life and, and, and just to cope, you know, but then, you know, then I learned, okay, well, no one's getting sick, you know, this is good. Yeah. And then, so then I picked up your book and I'm like, it's thing. And then there's, you know, I've got a stack of books at this point that, you know, just talk about the enhancement of cognitive development and, you know, you just go through and then you talk about, like you said, joy and the emotional state and wonder and imagination. And the list just really goes on and on and on from something that's so simple. Right. But it is hard too. it's hard, too, because it's hard. It's hard to carve the time for it. Yeah. Um, it's hard to go against the grain of more, more, more adult directed activities. That's what we were doing. The same thing as you. Yeah, we were picking all the things that were directed, and I mean, we're all like dying inside, even though they were good things. Yeah, oh, it was a lot, and so I think it is hard to go against that culture when you know maybe the other kid is in French class and tuba lessons and swim and gymnastics and church activities and you know tutoring, you know, and then you don't do anything. You know, (laughs) we're just going to go on a hike. You know, it seems irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah, it was so funny because it's like we almost um, I keep it picturing like a rope and how like we kind of make a mess of things by overcomplicating it. And we just need to like let go and allow it to be more simple Um, because it's the answer is really simple. Um, But, yeah, it takes a process of letting go of our expectations, letting go of our fears, letting go of. Um, all of that and just and just um, allowing that time and space to happen and just kind of prioritizing that. You know what? It's humbling. Yeah. yeah. That's what I, I think a little bit. We had, let me tell you a story. We, um, well, we're homeschooling. And so, um, you know, we, we have a, a lot of time. We have extra time for play, which is one of the benefits. There's a lot of, you have more time. And um, so, but my kids, so we don't, you know, the schoolwork does not take up that much time. It's a couple hours, you know, depending on the day. But my kids, they complain about it. You know, they're like, ah. <laughs> so I'm constantly like, look, like, did you see the bus? It came at eight. You know, it's not coming back till 445. You would be having hours and hours. You'd have homework. So I'm just like this broken record, Angela. Just saying the same thing over and over. So one day I was like, here's the deal. We're going to do a full school day. I'm getting you up. You're going to sit on the couch. We're going to pretend like that's the bus ride. We're going to do work. I'm going to give you your 15 minute recess. You know, we're going to do the, do it like how, you know, how school seems to be structured these days. And, um, you know, of course the kids didn't really like it, uh, but it was really eye opening to me because by noon, uh, so we're only a couple hours in, they kept, they started to say, what do we do next? What do we do next? Yeah. Like, Oh wow! (laughs) Really lost their sense of autonomy, and um, you know, so this this so it was eye opening to me because I saw that the gift of unfilled time helps them to learn how to manage their own time, yes, manage their own lives, and 
you know, to find the things that bring them joy and make them tick. And yes. So it's funny. Sometimes we try and give lessons to our kids and then we're the ones that get the main lessons. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's talk about time. So here's the thing. I would say that one of the things that um, went viral for me was your thing. (laughs) I took a picture of the one page of your book. I made a graphic. How much active play is enough? So you say, look at my book. Actually, this is like where it opens to is this page. Right. I creased there. <laughs> I had heard it from this Charlotte Mason from the 1800s, but hadn't heard it again until your book. And now I'm seeing it pop up other places. But um, you say children should be getting active uh, daily movement experiences throughout the day in order to develop strong and healthy muscular. I can't say that word. Musculoskeletal and sensory systems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> plays the groundwork for higher level mental and physical skills as children age. Okay. So here's it. Ideally, kids of all ages should get at least three hours of free play outdoors a day. And then you have this chart. You know, infants should be playing throughout the day. Toddlers could benefit from five to eight hours worth of active play, preferably outdoors. Preschoolers, five to eight hours. School age, which is ages five to 13, four to five hours of physical activity and outdoor play. And adolescence, which is a big deal because people ask me about teens all the time, but you're still saying three to four hours a day, they could benefit from physical activity. And so, um, so what would you say to the majority of people who, including myself at the beginning, would think that this amount of time to move around freely is kind of absurd or outlandish? Good question. So the first thing I do when I when I speak to an audience is usually ask them, I don't tell them that they need to spend three hours outdoors. I ask them, um, think about your childhood and think about a typical elementary day. You know, how much time do you feel like you spent outside playing, not in sports? Think about, did you walk to school? Did you walk home from school? You know, how long was your recess session? And then how long did you have to play afterwards? And give me a total. I'm going to do it. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Walked a mile. So what that took 30 minutes. Yep. I don't know. We walked a mile to and from. And then we had morning recess, which was I I mean it was at least 45 minutes. Might have been an hour, right? Because I remember we would really play. We had lunch recess, which was also long, and afternoon recess, and we walked home. And then when my dad got home from work, he'd always play ball with us in the street. We'd play catch. And um, so I would say hours. Yeah. Yeah. So in the typical response I get is about four to five hours of outdoor play. They got, you know, digging in the dirt, building dams, you know, and then I ask them now think of a child, you know, today, it could be a child, your child, it could be a child you work with and think about, do they walk to school? Do they walk home from school? You know, how long is their recess session? How long do they have afterwards? You know, and give me a total amount of outdoor play time they have. So not counting sports and, the average response is about 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Um, the research is, was like four is about 48 minutes. I think it's less now. I read it. Uh, <laughs> I think had in his book, uh, and it's from the National Wildlife Federation. His says four to seven minutes. What? Yeah, that's. What I think that's coming from is that for out for free play outdoors. So I think what's happening is that maybe kids are getting a half hour or 45 minutes once a week. You know, yeah. to really have their own time, yes. 
you know, that's theirs where it's not directed by someone else, just, you know, a few times a week for a short period of time. That's crazy. Because, and then I say, if you think about it, if you change the environment that drastically, you know, where they were, you know, moving around, you know, building forts together to, you know, if you're, it's four to seven minutes, holy cow, that's a huge change in the amount of engagement they're getting in the movement of their body, um, engagement of senses, um, all of that. And so it's, it's, it's bound to affect child development. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, we're, again, we're seeing a rise in therapies. We're seeing all sorts of issues. Um, and so I, we're at the point where I was, I was taught as a healthcare provider to do no harm. We're at the point where if we do nothing, we're going to do harm. And so we really do need to prioritize restoring. This is not even like, I remember people saying, are you a progressive? Because you're, you're doing something so innovative. I'm like, no, um, if you really think about it, I'm not. Um, I'm just restoring and protecting their right for outdoor play. I'm just like moving backwards. Yeah, I'm really bringing back the, you know, like what we did in the past is is restoration of outdoor play um, of something that we had, but we've lost really. And if, so if we realize that we're at the point where we're doing harm, that's pretty powerful. And we need, we need to do something. One of the um, practical ideas you have in your book that I hadn't read other places. I've not read. Um, You say to schedule all day play dates. Allow for plenty of time to get bored, eat meals together, explore, imagine, and create new play opportunities. So I thought that was a really neat takeaway that parents could do, you know, just to kind of stop having things be two hours or 90 minutes or, you know, let them go play all day and experience um, Absolutely. all those different parts of childhood. Let's end with, let's end with this concept of simplicity, um, since you were just talking about that. Yeah, you say simply moving about in a sensory-rich yet soothing environment is more than adequate for developing muscles naturally. And you talk about that there's really no need for formal exercises, um, that kind of what children do on their own, ordinary play experiences, give them the vestibular input that they need, like going upside down on the monkey bars, rolling down hills, dancing until their little hearts are content. How can such a simple thing be so impactful? so interesting because I think um, I had the the perspective of like working in a clinic and again working on the senses but I was given like a a little box of sand and then I started watching kids in giant mud puddles and as a therapist we um, are trained to analyze the therapeutic benefits you know we go down everything everything from every single muscle the hand to balance to eye everything and I was like in the mud puddles, like it's just so much richer. So they're both considered a sensory experience, right? But, you know, if we truly want to provide a sensory experience that's designed to actually create change in the child, I always, I always ask, well, which one's going to better meet that need? And, and everyone always says the mud puddles because it's a full body engagement. You know, you're, you're walking on uneven ground. You got the smells, you've got the wind, um, you've got real frogs that you can catch versus maybe plastic frogs in a little sandbox. Um, it's a, it's a meaningful child directed experience. You know, there's choice. The child can choose who they're going to play with, what they're going to do. Um, 
And that reduces anxiety levels for kids that have sensory issues. Um, and it's just a real environment. So if they actually gain skill in that environment, it's more likely to generalize into a, another real environment versus this plastic environment where it might not necessarily generalize over. I love that. Um, I, love, I have this one last quote here. It just says, children don't need to sit in order to learn. That's like one that would be good to put on our fridge, right? <laughs> Perfect. Children don't need to sit in order to learn. And so I just, I mean, I am not, I am not exaggerating when I say your book changed my life. And when I say if there was one book that parents should read, it should be this one, Balanced and Barefoot. If people are wanting to find out more about you and about your book and about Timbernook, if they're interested in joining or starting one, um, where can people go to find information? So they can find us at timbernook.com and, um, they can email, there's an email on there as well and a phone, a phone if they want to call us. Um, but yeah, they can um, watch us on the website. There's all different locations. So they can push on locations to see if there's one near them as well. The other thing is um, on Facebook, if they want to follow us to kind of hear the connections between outdoor play and the neuroscience behind it. Um, and, you know, um, any research that's latest research is usually on there. So that's Timbernook on Facebook as well. Yeah. And your book's on Amazon, your book's everywhere. So definitely one that's worth reading, worth giving as a gift, I think, you know, throw it in with a baby shower present, right? Yeah. Start early. Um, because it does, it really does start really young. Can we, can we end with a favorite outdoor childhood memory of yours? Oh, yes. Um, so... I remember my, so I had my best friend lived right behind me. <laughs> so we lived like in this kind of interesting neighborhood where um, we had a fence and I would pull the string to get to her house. Um, but we'd go on different adventures. And I remember one time we went to a yard sale and bought old curtains and like silverware and <laughs> cups and plates and stuff. And then we, we biked to the park. Um, which was a couple miles away and brought food and we made a picnic and had like our own picnic lunch. That was kind of a sweet moment. That's really special. And it was all on your own and autonomous. And, oh, I mean, you can just think what a joy. Even adults like to do stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Well, Angela, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you're doing to inspire parents and teachers and caregivers. Um, to roll it back a little bit and really to find the joy and the benefits of all the simple things. Yeah, thank you for having me. Real truth alert.
Pregnancy, birth, and having a baby isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I wish it were. But the reality is that many people struggle and suffer through this time without the right help or even knowing what they're dealing with. I'm perinatal psychologist Dr. Katayun Kayani, also known as Dr. Kat. My podcast, Mom and Mind, aims to shine a light on the difficult reality that so many hopeful and new parents experience and raise the volume on how we can better support mental health, which is a big part of our overall health. Episodes include personal stories from people who have healed through things like pregnancy and postpartum anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so much more. I also talk with specialists and experts who explain and educate on these conditions. All of this to support parents to know that they are not alone, that healing is possible, and there are resources that can help you today. Listen into Mom and Mind and walk with me through the world of perinatal mental health.